You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. passage comes from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I thought um, I'd actually start with a brief personal introduction. I was thinking probably a lot of you know me, or at least you've seen me checking your vaccine cards or what have you on the way in. But... um, My name is Brad Anderson. I'm one of the deacons here at EBF. Um, I'm also one of our supported missionaries. Um, I work with an organization called Bridges International, which is a branch of crew uh, geared towards international students here in Chicagoland. And my wife is Jess. Uh, She's actually been here quite a bit longer than I have. I've been here since 2017, but she's been a part of this church since she was an undergrad. yeah, other than a couple of years when she was overseas, um, which is where we met in Turkey. My son, Benjamin, who I'm sure you've seen around, and you'll probably see him climbing up and down the stairs after the service or attempting to sanitize his hands many times in the entryway. I'm not sure what the lure is of hand sanitizer, but it's pretty fun if you're two, apparently. So, so 98% of Egyptians live on 3% of its territory. Put a different way, 95% of the 100 million person population of the nation of Egypt lives either along the banks of the Nile or in its delta. And if you look at this on a satellite picture, it's really quite stunning. You see this sort of green triangle in the north and then sort of this ribbon of green kind of snakes its way south. So why does it look like this? Well, the reason is that outside of, for the most part, outside of the Nile River area, Egypt's an extreme desert. There's no water, and therefore there's no life, just miles and miles of barren desert. And it's a reality today, even with all of our modern technology, we're still more or less dependent on water for life. Uh, Irrigation can can extend the range, you can live apart from water, but the reality is you still have to live near water in one way or the other. And even if you think about some of our desert cities in America, like Phoenix or Albuquerque, those are actually both on rivers, believe it or not, on the salt or the Rio Grande River. Uh, you just, you have to be tied to a water source. It's, it's as true today as it was in Israel. Water is life, um, which since we live right next to Lake Michigan, we probably don't think about that much because we have the ultimate water source, but it is a reality. And for the people of Israel, uh, they would have really understood a desert well because a chunk of the country was desert and the desert was never too far away. So this would have been an important reality. And our our passage that we're going to look at today uses this reality as its central metaphor. In Psalm 1, the psalmist uses this this reality of water to illustrate 
a spiritual truth. The path to true happiness and flourishing in the Christian life is studying and obeying God's word. I'll, I'll say that again. The path to true happiness and flourishing in the Christian life is studying and obeying God's word. Now, before we get into the meat of Psalm 1, I actually want to talk a little bit about how we read and understand the Psalms in general. And uh, if you could bear with me for a couple minutes, I'm actually going to nerd out on this a bit because when I was in seminary, this is one of those light bulb moments for me uh, that I just really uh, understood something. And it really opened up the Psalms for me when I, I, was, I was taught more of like how they work and how you read them. So obviously the literary genre of a psalm is, is poetry. And because of that, we don't read it and we don't interpret it in the same way that we would, for example, one of Paul's letters uh, or that kind of argument. It's not, it's not an intellectual argument, you know, like X and Y and Z, therefore, you know, so-and-so. Um, it's, it's, essentially, it's like art. It's supposed to have an aesthetic quality. You are, obviously, you are supposed to understand them, but you're also supposed to feel them. And actually, not only were the Psalms poetry, uh, quite a few of them were actually written to be sung. Uh, so in a very real way, in a good chunk of the Psalms, we have the lyrics to the hymn book of the ancient Israelites. And this is why you sort of see some of those cryptic notes at the top of some of the Psalms that we sort of just glaze over. Um, that They might reference a tune. Uh, they might, I think in a couple cases, they even reference a choir master uh, or an instrument. Uh, sometimes we know what instrument they're referring to. Sometimes we don't, and as far as I know, we actually don't know any of the tunes anymore, which is a bummer, but, um, but this, this explains like why so many psalms you see in worship songs, because you can basically just a little bit of paraphrasing in most of them, you can turn it into, not most of them, but a, a number of them you can turn into a worship songs, a worship song. They're, they make good worship songs because they are worship songs. Now, kind of getting back to, to poetry, uh, it's important to understand that the Psalms, they're not exactly poetry how we would write poetry in English typically. Uh, I don't know if we have any English PhD students or English lit students among us, um, but for, for the rest of us, for, at least for us who are laymen uh, in the field of poetry, we think of it as being synonymous with like a certain rhyme or a certain meter, and we think of like maybe a lot of alliteration and stuff like that. But this is, it's not how they wrote poetry. Um, like ancient Hebrew poetry wasn't really written like that. That just wasn't really what they were into. But instead, the kind of things they were into were things like, you know, maybe word count, repetition. And they were, they were really into, like, different structures of the, of the poems. Uh, the, the structure was often designed to point to a certain part of it. The most common one that we see would be pointing to the middle of the, the psalm, but there are... There are quite a few structures that are there. And they, they even like to do things like, if you were to count it in the Hebrew, like the, it might be divided into two standard stanzas, and the number of words in the first one and the second one might be identical. Just really a lot of things like that was what they were into. So in other words, like the, the kind of poetry that's in the Bible, it's, I would say it's a lot more similar to like haiku than it is English language poetry. Haiku's, it's a Japanese form of poetry where you know, there's a certain syllable count and a certain structure that um, it, it's more or less required to have by definition. So we don't want to think of like Shakespeare's love sonnets or Robert Frost or Shel Silverstein. You know, we want to think more in terms of something like a haiku. Um, and then also, it's that, that's sort of like the macro level of how the, the Psalms were written, but on the micro level, there's a very common line structure that we see in 
maybe not all of the psalms, but in the vast majority of it. So when you, when you read a line of, of a psalm, there's always, or not, as I said, not quite always, but usually there's a repeating structure. So it's sort of like, you'll notice it says almost the same thing twice, but it's usually like it says something and then it like advances that idea in a certain way. Uh, is probably the most common one. And we, we see this over and over again, and we'll, we'll see some examples of it in the psalm that we're going to look at today. Um, and as much as I'd like to uh, bore you for longer about this, I should probably move on to getting into the actual psalm that we're going to look at. Um, so Psalm 1, it has six, six lines, um, which are the six verses. Um, it looks like more lines in English, but in, in Hebrew, it's, it's exactly six lines. And there's, there's a pretty clear division into two stanzas. Uh, the, first, the first stanza is the first three lines, uh, verses 1 through 3, and the second stanza would be verses 4 through 6. Um, and the first stanza is about the righteous, and the second stanza is focused on the wicked. And there's, there's a very clear contrast between the two, which is kind of the general idea of the psalm. And it, the, way, the way it's structured, it's sort of meant to point to the two metaphors in the middle of the psalm, one of which was a tree planted by water, and the other one is wheat chaff, uh, which the, the tree represents the righteous, and the, the chaff represents the wicked. So if you, if you think about the psalm, if, if nothing else, if you remember the two metaphors, you'll remember the basic idea of the psalm. Uh, you know, the tree planted by the stream and the chaff blown away by the wind. All right, so let's dive into the, the first stanza. Uh, the main idea of the first stanza is that a person who delights in the law of the Lord is truly happy and flourishes. The first two lines describe what is true of this person, and the third line illustrates it with a metaphor. So zeroing in on the, the first line, which is, Verse 1, we see that it has three parts. It says, Blessed is the man who, one, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, two, nor stands in the way of sinners, and three, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. And you'll note that all of these things have to do with the way of life of wicked people. And also remember what I had mentioned about lines of Hebrew poetry. So it's, it's, it's that structure, the repeat structure. It's trying to kind of, you know, give you the idea by sort of like some repetition and advancing of the idea. So the blessed person is characterized, first of all, by not living according to the advice of the wicked. And the word counsel here would refer, generally refer to spoken advice, uh, which the idea here is not living according to what our fallen world tells us to do. For us, it would, these days, it would probably be more likely to be written advice, maybe something we see on the internet, on um, you know, social media, or uh, even worse, Twitter in particular. But um, you know, for them, like, they were pretty much all, or the vast majority of them were illiterate, so if you got advice, it would be, it would be spoken. So that, that's the idea here. And you know, when we read this, it, it seems simple in principle, you know, just don't listen to the advice of our fallen world. But if we're honest, this is really difficult to live out. And I, I just think, you know, if you think about, like, it, it just always seems to be, like, every generation or every few years, you know, that idea that's popular in Christian circles just so happens to match what's popular in society. 
at large. And I'm sure like we could all think of examples of this or things like this. And I, I think one reason this is true is that we want people to like us and we're sort of naturally prone to bend our, the way we talk or bend our, our ideas to make this happen. It, it's certainly something that I find myself doing uh, probably more than I would care to admit. Um, secondly, and again, we're still in the same first line, the lifestyle of the, the godly person is characterized not by not living the lifestyle of the wicked, uh, of not walking in the same path that they do. So when the psalmist says that the blessed person does not stand in the way of sinners, it means that we're not to live the lifestyle that, that they do. In, in other words, like if you look at our lives as Christ followers, there, there should be something different about our lives than, than what, would, what they would look like if we weren't following Christ. Uh, which there's, there's probably a lot that we could say about this. And I think in some ways, like the way that your life changes when you start following Christ can vary quite a bit by, from person to person. But the general idea is there's, there should be something different about us. And then finally, the blessed person does not act like those who mock and scorn God. And again, this seems really simple on its face. Uh, I doubt that there's anybody here today who has a problem with openly mocking God in your day-to-day lives. Um, but I, I just encourage us to keep in mind that there's lots of ways to mock God or to scorn God that don't actually involve using words of, of mocking uh, you know, I'd argue it could be things like uh, not giving him proper priority in our lives. It could be things like, you know, reading his word in such a way as to sort of make it fit what we want to hear and make it fit what we want to say instead of going to it with the attitude of conforming our minds and our thoughts and our actions to it. Uh, it really could be a lot of things. One thing I'd like to particularly draw our attention to is the importance of the word blessed in, in this line. Um, in English, this is a word that we, we use pretty frequently, but we don't, we don't necessarily understood it, understand it well. And when we're reading the Old Testament, there's actually an additional important nuance, which is that there's, there's, there's two different Hebrew words that we tend to translate both of them as blessed in, in English, you know, blessed or blessed or, you know, the verb bless. And that there's a pretty important nuance, uh, difference in nuance between the two. And the particular word used here in Psalm 1, it has the meaning more like truly happy. Uh, you know, in fact, in a lot of languages, you know, when you read the translation in that language, it, it actually uses the word happy to, to translate it. Uh, some of you know, I, I lived in Turkey for quite a few years. And, it, you know, if you read the Turkish, it doesn't say blessed, it says happy. Uh, so, you know, I think when you read that for the psalm, just put in your mind the word happy or truly happy. But it's also important to note that it's not a momentary happiness. It's more like a deeper joy or like a more profound happiness. Uh, It's not the happiness that I get when my football team wins a game. You know, it's something deeper. And all this said, I I would summarize the first line of Psalm 1 as saying, the person who doesn't live the lifestyle of the wicked is truly happy. Again, the person who doesn't live the lifestyle of the wicked is truly happy. Positively speaking, we could say that the path to true happiness is living a godly life. So, moving on to the second line. The second line has has two parts to it. Again, that same kind of repeating structure in a line. And it's it's still describing that same truly happy person in verse 1. In this line, we first see that 
this person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And while the word translated here is the word Torah, which often refers to the Mosaic law that we get from the first five books of the Bible from you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In, in the context of the psalm, it's actually most likely a broader meaning. It most likely is the idea of the general instruction of God that we find in Scripture. The second part of this line repeats, uh, repeats this idea and intensifies it, saying that the truly happy person meditates on God's instruction day and night. And the, the word translated meditate here is something more like stutter or recite. And that's because in the, in the time that was their practice, like if you, when they would read something, it, for those who could read, they'd sort of like mutter it or say it under their breath. Uh, so th- that, that's just how they did it. And this, in, in t- again, intensifies the idea of the, the first part. The truly happy person loves God's instruction and, you know, he or she is always reading and studying it. And it's, I don't think we're meant to understand it literally in the sense that we should always be reading God's word you know, day and night. It's, I think it's, uh, it's, it's an illustration that kind of has the idea of all the time. And if you think about it, this was originally written to a society that had no electricity. So I don't, I don't think anybody was doing too much reading at night without electricity. But the, the idea is like day and night, basically all the time regularly, um, you know, just a regular part of your life. I would also say that there's a clear implication that in reading God's word and studying it that we'd be obeying it as well. Thus, I'd I'd summarize the second line as saying, truly happy is the person who delights in God's word and studies and applies it regularly. And I'll say that again. Truly happy is the person who delights in God's word and studies it and applies it regularly. Finally, in the third line, we come to one of, the, one of the two central metaphors of this psalm. And again, the fact that it, it's in the middle makes it prominent. The same truly happy person is now compared to a tree that's planted by a stream. And I'm, I'm sure probably all of you have seen a stream, like trees that are planted near water thrive and they, and they grow well. And also think about that satellite picture of Egypt again. When you're, when you're near the Nile, there's life and there's greenness, uh, but there's, there's nothing but desert when you get away from it. And also think about how lush the vegetation is when you're by a river or a creek or something like that. And again, this picture is supposed to grab our attention. It's not, we are supposed to read it and understand it, but we're also supposed to feel it. We're supposed to feel this metaphor of a tree planted by the water and a tree that's, that's thriving and flourishing and green. And <clears throat> this is supposed to tell us the, the truly happy person is alive and well and is flourishing in life. Kind of summarizing this first stanza, I'd, I'd put it this way. A person who does not live the lifestyle of the wicked, who delights in God's word, and who frequently studies and obeys it, is truly happy. This is the path to flourishing in the Christian life, to being alive and flourishing like a tree planted by a river. So the second stanza of this psalm is, is verses four to six. And, and to be honest, this stanza is much more sobering. It's, it's focused on the alternative to the happy person described in the first stanza. And if I were to sum up the second stanza in one word, I would, I would choose the word frustration. 
And this stanza, you know, like the first stanza ended with a metaphor. This one begins with a metaphor, which again is, is prominent because it's in the middle of the psalm. And the, the metaphor used here is, is chaff. Now, to be honest, I think if I'd never read the Bible, I'd never have had any idea what chaff is, or, or probably more accurately, if I'd never read the Bible, I, I never would have had reason to look up what chaff is on the, on, on the internet or something like that. Uh, but what chaff is, is it's basically like if you were going to harvest wheat. And ancient Israel was an agrarian society, like most people were farmers, like probably you know, the vast majority of the jobs or choices were a farmer or fisher. Um, so, you know, it's something they would have known. But for just to help us understand it, what chaff is, it's, it's basically the husk of a kernel of wheat. And the, the husk is actually unusable by humans. Uh, we actually can't even digest it. So if you want to eat wheat, you have to find a way to separate the husk from the, the kernel, uh, which was basically this extremely labor-intensive process called threshing. Uh, so, what th- so what threshing is, is basically like they'd sort of spread out the, the wheat that they collect and then you would either like beat it or you'd, or you'd run over it with something, you know, to kind of loosen it up. And then you'd sort of like collect it up and throw it in the air. And the, the kernel's a lot heavier than the chaff. So the kernels just sort of sink to the ground and then the chaff just kind of floats, floats away because you, you can't use it. And then obviously like you'd have to stoop down and pick up the, the kernels again. Uh, so in verse four, uh, the fir- like we saw that we see that the the psalmist is stating that the wicked are not like the happy person, or yeah. So the sorry, the wicked are compared to this chaff. Um, but you know, looking looking in on on verse four, the first the first part. There's two parts to this this line. The first part, the psalmist simply states that the wicked are not like the happy person. Uh, the implication being that they're not flourishing. And then the second part, we see this illustration of the chaff that's sort of blowing away in the wind. Um, and again, we, what we see here is like instead of flourishing the wicked or, or basically blown away with the wind, that there's, there's nothing, nothing lasting, there's nothing fruitful, there's no flourishing. The next line, uh, which is verse five, describes the wicked in more detail. And this line has two parts. The first part says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And the idea here is that the wicked are in, are in serious trouble when it comes to God's judgment. They cannot withstand it. And the second part states that, the sinner, that sinners cannot be, cannot be in the congregation of the righteous. And the word congregation here often has the connotation of the, the gathered people of Israel before God. In other words, the, the gathered people of God. And the idea here is that the wicked cannot possibly stand before God and ultimately can't be a part of his people. It's just, it's just something that, that cannot be. Finally, the, the last line of the second stanza, which is verse six, draws an additional contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And it says that the way of the righteous is known by God and the way of the wicked perishes. And remember what we saw earlier, uh, we, you know, we talked about ways before. Way in this context refers to something along the lines of lifestyle. And alongside that, the idea of knowing here, it's, it's something more than an intellectual knowing. It's, it's relational. And there's, there's a sense of like identifying. So there's, there's a connection between, between God and the lifestyle of the righteous. And then as for the way of the wicked, 
At first glance, the second part of the line seems a little awkward. Like, how, how does a way of living perish? Uh, you know, it just seems a little odd. But if we, you know, we look, kind of look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we sometimes see the same word used to refer to hopes or plans that are frustrated or to a person being lost and, and things along these lines. So, you know, for, for us, we typically don't say that my hopes perished or my, my plans for the weekend died. Uh, you know, you might say it, it didn't pan out or it didn't amount to anything. Uh, so kind of keeping that in mind, probably a clearer way to understand the second part of this line is to say, the way of the wicked will come to nothing. In other words, it's a dead end and it leads to nothing but frustration. So all in all, I would summarize the second stanza in this way. Unlike the righteous, the wicked do not flourish. And ultimately, their lifestyle comes to nothing, only frustration and judgment, similar to chaff being blown away in the threshing process. And let me say that again. Unlike the righteous, the wicked do not flourish. And ultimately, their lifestyle comes to nothing, only frustration and judgment, similar to chaff being blown away in the threshing process. Now, you might think, this is a pretty harsh picture. And you're right, it is a pretty harsh picture. But remember, this is, this is poetry. You're supposed to feel it. It's not, it's not an intellectual statement per se. You know, the psalmist is not necessarily trying to say a lot of things in the psalm, but he's trying to get our attention with a, with a beautiful picture. And being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's painting a compelling and beautiful picture to get our attention. But I, I think one of the most critical things to remember in, in reading the psalm is who we are. If it were not for Christ's death on the cross for our sins, we would be the wicked. We are the wicked outside of Christ. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and uh, I'll give you a, a couple seconds, uh, I'll give you a minute to like pull that up if you want to. Uh, again, that's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And let me read that last part again. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As Christ followers, the psalm is a beautiful picture. But remember, but for the grace of God, the picture that characterizes in, characterizes us in the psalm would be the chaff. We were the chaff, we don't deserve to be the tree, but we are the tree now that we are washed and sanctified and justified. And I'd encourage us to be reminded of this and remember just why it is that we are in a position to flourish. Along with this, in looking at the psalm, we see a picture of what it means to flourish in the Christian life. In other words, we're, we're instructed on what it means to flourish in the Christian life. First of all, as we saw, we need to be tied to the source to God's instruction found in God's word. 
And there are lots of ways to do this. However, all of them involve reading, or at least listening to someone read the Bible. And I, I would just, I'm sure you've all heard this before, but I'll say it again. I'd suggest that we should set aside times every day to read and meditate on God's word. For me personally, this works best after my son goes to bed and hopefully before I start to fall asleep, which I'm pretty tired most of the time, so this can be a pretty small window. Um, and I know some people for whom it works well, well to get up early and read and pray in the morning, which this has never worked well for me, but if you're one of those people who uh, enjoys a 5 a.m. quiet time, more power to you. Um, I even have a friend who once came into a men's group that I was a part of, and he said to us, guys, I, I don't read the Bible anymore. And then, you know, we all sort of looked at him, and then he said, I listened to it. Uh, his way of spending time in the Bible in that season was listening to a recording of someone else read it. I, w I would also say this is one of those things that will probably change for you during different seasons of life. For some of our students, I I'm willing to bet that a 1 a.m. devotional time could be a a really great thing. Uh, it probably would have been for me as a student. But for, you know, once you graduate, that's probably not going to be the case. And for some of our parents of small children, especially for the moms, you know, it might be something where you set aside 15 minutes here and there, you know, or maybe even a shorter period of time sometimes. And, you know, maybe for others of you, it's reading or listening to the Bible on your way to the office, be it in your car or on the train, or even just walking into wherever it is that you work. Uh, or even maybe f sitting down at your desk a little early at your home office and spending some time in God's word. Also note that meditating on God's word is more than just making sure that your eyes technically pass over each word on the page, um, which I think that we've all probably done reading like that in our lives. I know uh, in my, at least in my seminary, I, was a, I studied engineering in undergrad, so we didn't really have to read anything, but uh, in, in seminary, I, I've probably read like, thousands of pages using this method. And let me tell you, it's, it's not worth a whole lot in the long run. But it's, you know, when we read the Bible, we want to read it thoughtfully. We want to ponder it. Uh, we want to understand it and think about how to apply it to our lives. And I, I would just really, again, focus on, encourage us to focus on the, the quality of our Bible reading rather than the quantity. Because of this, I'm personally not a huge fan of read the Bible in a year plans. Uh, you know, if it's something that works for you, that's, that's awesome. But I just encourage us to make sure that our reading is, is quality and that you have time to be thoughtful about it. I also think that one really important thing is to, to read the Bible in community. And one way that we do this is the way that we're doing it right now, which is our Sunday worship services. You know, we, we hear it preached and in a sense we sing it too. We sing it in, our, in the worship songs that we sing, or at least sing biblical truth. Uh, but another great way to do this is in our ethos groups, which I, I saw that we conveniently advertised for in the service. But uh, there's just something special about reading and studying the Bible in a group and talking about what it means for our lives. There's just things that you might miss that other people might pick up on, or, you know, just different people might have different blind spots. And maybe, you know, somebody else's blind spots uh, or has, you know, is really strong in an area that's your blind spot. Um, it's, this can especially be a good thing if you're around people who, you know, grew up in a pretty different way that you did or from a different background. You, know, like you just might be set up to see some different things. Uh, you know, therefore, I would just want to say if you're not in an ethos group or some kind of Bible study, I'd, I'd encourage you to think about joining one. Taking this a step further, 
it also implies obeying God's word. And we see this in the first and third lines of the, or we see it especially in the first line of this poem, but it's also implied in the second and third lines. The path to true happiness and flourishing means not living a wicked lifestyle, but one of obedience. And I would say when you look over, look at the church over the years and, you know, in most contexts, the church tends to struggle with either overemphasizing or underemphasizing the importance of obeying God's instruction in the Christian life. Uh, you know, of either falling into the danger of legalism, you know, which would be overly focusing on what we're supposed to do to the, you know, to the exclusion of other things. Or on the other hand, falling into kind of sort of license to do whatever we want. Uh, you know, now that I'm saved by grace through faith, it doesn't matter what I do. Uh, you know, that sort of idea. Um, and I think we sort of even have, have personal kind of leanings in this area. I'd say for me, and most of the time, I'd probably tend to struggle more with legalism, uh, though not always. And I think looking at the American church of our day, I think, you know, as, as a broad generalization, um, which I realize is always dangerous, but as a broad generalization, I think we're more prone to struggle with license in our culture. Uh, we just, we don't want to be told what to do. We want to do whatever we want. Uh, you know, the kind of messages we hear from society are things like, you do you or have it your way. You know, it's all about your preferences. Or I, I even heard on a radio station this last week that it's all about you in 2022, um, which I've got news for them. It's been all about you for many years in our, in our country. But, and unfortunately, we, we tend to adopt this mindset in the, the church as well. But I, I do want to be really clear about something. Uh, it, it, it's a really good thing to be on our guard against legalism. Like, that, that is a good thing. And the New Testament is certainly on its guard against legalism. Uh, but I, I think, like, looking at the psalm, it can, it can give us some important guidance in navigating that medium between the extremes of legalism or, or license. While we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, like, you know, what we see in the, this psalm is the path to true happiness in the Christian life is obedience. You know, we, we can't earn our salvation by good works, and it would be foolish just to try to do so. However, the path to flourishing involves obedience. So it's sort of, yeah, it just kind of reveals to us the reason for obedience. For example, I, I think of a professor I had in, in one of my, my seminary classes who would, uh, you know, I can't remember which psalm he was talking about, but you, you talked about, there's an old hymn that was called Trust and Obey, which it kind of went something like, I'm not going to sing, but I'll tell you the words. Uh, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And he, he would really emphasize that there is no other way. Like he would say it like, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Uh, you know, that is, that is the way that God has given us. And I'd also want to say that if you're not currently following Christ, that the psalm is a wake-up call. You know, you're not flourishing and ultimately you can't flourish without Christ in your life. And it's not to say that you won't experience success uh, in this life. You can be extremely successful without flourishing. And uh, this actually reminds me of myself when I, I was an undergrad before I became a believer. Um, believe it or not, I, I had basically every kind of academic success that you could imagine at, at my age. But it was, it was really perplexing and disappointing to me that it didn't make me happy or actually really anything close to happy. Um, I was successful, but I wasn't flourishing. And, you know, fortunately in God's grace, he put some people in my life to share the gospel with me and invite me to Bible study. And 
I ultimately saw, saw my life change, but I think, I think one of the realities is that sometimes meeting your goals can actually be one of the most crushing disappointments that we face in life when we, you know, we meet the thing that we strive for and it, it just doesn't do it for us um, because it can't. So all that to say, I, w- I would just say if you're seriously considering the gospel and what it means to flourish in, the li- in life, I'd encourage you to talk to me or someone else after the service today. Well, we've seen that Psalm 1 is based around two central metaphors. The, on the one hand, there's the tree flourishing by a stream, and on the other hand, there's the, the chaff blown away by the wind. We've seen how the path to flourishing, the path to true happiness in the Christian life is studying and obeying God's word. And I'd encourage all of us to spend some time today or over the next few days meditating on this psalm. I'd encourage you to think about lush vegetation by a stream I'd even encourage you to maybe look, you know, Google that satellite image of Egypt or, you know, or think about that, you know, or maybe even look at some pictures of streams or some pictures of chaff as you think about the psalm. And by God's grace, the path to flourishing is right there before us. So let's take it. And uh, let me say a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this chance to gather this morning. And we thank you for your word and the things that you teach us in it. And I pray that you would really help us to be people who flourish in life, people who um, are sharpened by each other uh, when we study your word, and people who are just, just really tied to you and live lives of obedience and lives where we flourish. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.